0: All right. well we are going to be continuing through our study of the Gospel of John. And if you want to turn with me in your Bibles, we're going to go to John chapter 1, verses 35 through 51. I'm reading here from the English Standard Version. Beginning at verse 35, it says this, The next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples. That's John the Baptist. And he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two heard John speak and followed Jesus, and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon, and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas Jesus answered him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Uh, Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I just ask you, Lord, having read your word, that now as we seek to unpack it a little bit, that you would help me in doing that. Father, I just pray, Lord, that you would guard my mouth. And uh, Father, I pray, Lord, that you would open our hearts and minds to what you have here in these verses for us here this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this section of Scripture uh, chronicles for us, from a firsthand eyewitness perspective, those early days when Jesus first began to gather his core group of followers. I say from an eyewitness perspective, the author of the Gospel of John is John. John began his career as one of John the Baptist's disciples. And here in verse 37, it says that, well, in verse 35, 36, and 37, it talks about these two disciples who were with John the Baptist when Jesus goes walking by. And then John goes on to only name one of the two. And most likely, he was the other one. So he talks about Andrew some, but he, he is the other guy standing there. And so this is from a firsthand perspective, and it has details in it that uh, would only be known to somebody with a firsthand perspective, like the hour of the day when they went and hung out with Jesus all day, and even some of the inner wanderings of their heart as they're having these sorts of encounters. John the Baptist first directs the attention of two of his disciples, Andrew, and the one who is unnamed, but again, probably John, they direct their attention to Jesus, who's just walking by. He repeated his statement from the previous day. Uh, Last week, we studied a, a section of Scripture in which John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Andrew, in turn, will tell his brother Peter about Jesus, saying, We have found the Messiah. And I have to just pause here and point out an observation. Poor Andrew. <laughs> Anybody who has ever felt overshadowed by the accomplishments of a sibling can feel sympathy for how Andrew is introduced to us in verse 40. After all, Andrew became a follower of Jesus first. It was Andrew who first introduced his brother to Jesus. But, first, but verse 40 describes Andrew as Peter's brother. Not the other way around. (laughs) It's kind of like when people find out I'm a pastor in an Advent Christian church and they go, oh, are you John Tate's brother? I'm like, yeah, that's right. (laughs) I am. I'm I'm not ashamed of the association, but it does happen. I understand Andrew's dilemma here. The Bible tells us very little about Andrew. Very little. We have very little biographical information about this man, Andrew. But of course, Peter, his brother would go on to become chief among the disciples of Jesus, and one of the most significant figures in the early church. We know lots about Peter, and when John first wrote his gospel, Peter would have been a much bigger person in the early church than Andrew, and so it makes sense that when he explains who Andrew is, he says he's the brother of Peter. And it occurred to me as I was sitting in my office this week, how many of you, just by show of hands, know who Mordecai Ham is? Some of you do. Wow, that's impressive to me. I had no idea. (laughs) I had to look it up. Mordecai Ham is the guy who brought Billy Graham to Jesus. Andrew's kind of like that, I think. Uh, He leads Peter to Jesus. So John the Baptist brings Andrew to Jesus. Andrew brings Peter to Jesus, and Peter brings scores of people to Jesus, thousands in a single day. Reading these verses, it's almost like contact tracing our way back to patient zero in the spread of the gospel. The pattern we see repeated twice in these verses is that these men become followers of Jesus, and then by natural progression, they become evangelists. Andrew has this interview with Jesus throughout the day. He stays with him. And at the end of that, he goes and finds Peter and he says, I found him, the Messiah. You've got to come check this out. Philip, Jesus has an encounter with Jesus. Jesus says, follow me. He sees Jesus. He comes to Nathanael and says, I've found the one that Moses and the prophets wrote about. Come and see. I've always liked the story of Nathaniel's conversion, by the way, because it has, I guess for lack of a better word, kind of a spooky quality to it. His buddy Philip, who Jesus recruits directly in verse 43, seeks him out and tells him, again, we have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathaniel rightly kicks the tires a bit. I think sometimes you'll hear people criticize Nathaniel for his response to this news. But if somebody came into you and said, Jesus is here, wouldn't you go, well, <laughs> I have some questions, right? That's who Nathaniel is, and it's very human, it's very natural, and frankly, it's right. With everything that's at stake in what Philip is saying, Nathaniel should give it a good test to see if it stands up. And so he does. Nathaniel strikes me as the type of person who you never had to wonder what he was thinking. He just says what's on his mind. And honestly, it's just kind of funny the way Nathaniel answers Philip. He says, he answers Philip's claim that the most significant person in the history of the world would be Jesus of Nazareth by asking, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? It's basically like saying, What? can the Messiah really be from Ashland? And as much as I love the question that Nathaniel asks, this raw, human, honest moment in Scripture, I also really like the way Philip answers from that point. Philip says very simply, come and see. Come and see. Vance Havner once wrote, To some, Christianity is an argument. To many, it is a performance. And to a few, it is an experience. I think it's really significant that Philip doesn't answer Nathaniel's question with an argument. He says, Come and see. You've got to experience this for yourself. This reminds me of Psalm 34 8 Taste and see that the Lord is good. Taste and see that the Lord is good. This reminds me when I was a kid. I may have told you this story in the past, but one summer I was staying at my grandmother's house and I was told we were going to have ice cream for dessert, and I was very excited because who doesn't love ice cream? Uh, But then she completely ruined the ice cream by pouring this slimy, reddish green goop over the top of it. It was disgusting. It was rhubarb sauce. Now, I love rhubarb. In fact, maybe even like in my top three foods, that's pretty how high I'd put it. I love rhubarb. But rhubarb, when I first saw it as a child, I don't mean to be gross, but it looked like bloody boogers (laughs) (laughs) spread over the top of my ice cream. It looks incredibly unpalatable, doesn't it? And I thought she had just ruined ice cream, which is also in the top three. I said, I'm not going to eat that. And my grandmother said, you're not getting down from the table until you do over dessert. <laughs> and she stuck to her guns and I finally ate it. Actually, this is a true story. She force fed it to me eventually. I'm not making that up and (laughs) she grabbed my hair so my mouth flew open and she shoveled it in and (laughs) and she was right it was good but I never would have known if it was good unless I had tasted it myself taste and see that the Lord is good Philip says come and see taste and see to some, Christianity's an argument. To some, it's a performance. To a few, it's an experience. Taste, try, experience for yourself. Come and see. Philip begins this conversation with Nathaniel with a statement that roots his own faith in the Word of God. He says, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote. His first appeal is to the word of God. He says, this guy Jesus lines up with everything God has said in his word. I'm telling you, this is it. But when Nathaniel pushes back, Philip doesn't offer arguments. He invites Nathaniel to come and experience Jesus personally, not to experience his experience of Jesus. This is an important distinction. Philip doesn't say, I was with him and I felt this way. Or any such thing. He just says, I'm not going to, basically, I'm not going to invite you to experience my experience of Jesus. You need to have an experience with Jesus personally. Again, another example here that an illustration I was thinking about this week. When I was a police officer, I worked in the city of St. Albans, Vermont, northwestern Vermont. They have a huge INS processing building there. And so even though we were a very small city in like a New England town, we would have throughout the day loads of people from the far reaches of the globe. (laughs) Which meant quite often they would flag me down as a police officer because they wanted directions to where the INS building was. And more often than I can count almost, they didn't speak English at all. And I didn't speak what they spoke. I couldn't even understand which language they were speaking. I remember one time I was with Sergeant Bushy And we were on Main Street. I don't remember what we were doing, but a van load of people showed up. None of them spoke English. But we knew from experience that they were probably looking for the INS building, and they handed us a piece of paper that said the name of the building they had to go to. So we said, so Sergeant Bushy tried to explain, you go down here and take a right, and then you go a couple of intersections and take a left. And they went, uh. speak English. So do you know what Sergeant Bushy did? He said it in English again, but louder and slower. (laughs) You go down Main Street, take a right at the light, you go down the hill, and on and on and on he went like this. Now did it help that he said it slower or louder, or that he enunciated more clearly this language that was unintelligible to them. No. He did not. Sergeant Bushy finally just said, made understood, follow me. And they did, and they got their lickety split. That's what I think Philip says here, essentially, in Come and See. Uh, he could say again, This is the one of whom Moses said in the law and the prophets. He could have just kept going like that, but he doesn't. He finally just says, just follow me. Come on, come see. Come and see. So as Christians, we can't just speak the gospel louder or more slowly, as if somehow we'll make the unintelligible understood. I think sometimes we do that I think sometimes when the church talks about the gospel that we've found the one that God promised in his word and people respond to our exciting news with doubt and disbelief maybe even hostility we might feel tempted to argue the point with them sometimes we might even have a tendency to just speak the gospel louder. I've noticed, maybe you have too, that in our polarized culture, it seems that people believe that arguments are won today by shouting more loudly than those who disagree with us. But in John 10, 27, Jesus says this, "'My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me.'" So we don't have to be loud. Or if the voice of Jesus isn't getting the job done, we shouldn't call people over to Jesus with our own voice. Philip answers Nathaniel's doubt by saying, "Come and see." I believe Jesus is the way, the truth and the life. Really? You believe that stuff? Absolutely. I'm convinced. You should look into it. Come and see. The church has tried special nights. And special programs: dinners and giveaways, banners, billboards, picnics, concerts and fog machines. But when Jesus speaks, the sheep hear his voice and follow him. Nathaniel does come, and he, and he does see. As he's approaching, Jesus calls out to him like their old buddies. Like, they already know each other. Because, of course, Jesus has known Nathanael since before the foundations of the earth were laid. Jesus' birth at Bethlehem was not the beginning of a new person. It was a coming into the world of an infinitely old person. Jesus knew Nathanael before ever the world was. So as Nathanael's approaching, Jesus calls out, Behold! An Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. And Nathanael answers him, as you and I might, when somebody speaks to me as though they're familiar with me, how do you know me, he asks. Again, I like Nathanael, very blunt, to the point, speaks his mind. How do you know me? And Jesus answered him, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Do, 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 do. <laughs> Somebody's watching me. Oh, that's right, we're not supposed to sing in church. I'm sorry. This is why I said that the conversion of Nathaniel has kind of a spooky quality to it. And I kind of like that. There is absolutely no way for us to know what happened under the fig tree. We just don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us. Some commentators say that fig tree was an expression used in rabbinic literature to describe uh, somebody who was studying the law. And, but it seems like that particular idiom or expression evolved after this time. So that's probably unlikely what was meant. Maybe even evolved out of this interaction. I, I think it's just impossible to know exactly what was happening there. Maybe while sitting under the shade of the tree, Nathaniel had experienced some deep, unprecedented communion with God, some revelation, some compelling spiritual impression. But whatever it was, it was unwitnessed and known only to Nathaniel. Or so he had thought. This moment with God, or whatever it was, was given to him as an aid to faith. And when Jesus referenced whatever it was Nathanael had experienced while sitting under the shade of the fig tree, it was something that could have been known only to God, because it was something that was only in his own inner thoughts and experiences. And we know that this is how Nathanael took it because of how he responded. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God, you are the king of Israel. And Jesus answers him, he said, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. This section of scripture, verses 35 through 51, is densely packed with various titles describing Jesus. Verse 36, Lamb of God. Verse 38, Rabbi. Verse 41, Messiah. Verse 45, Son of Joseph. Verse 49, Son of God. Verse 49 also, King of Israel. Those are all ways that others describe Jesus in these verses, and they're all true. But in verse 51, Jesus calls himself something. He says, calls himself the Son of Man. He is the Son of God, and he is also the Son of Man. This is one of those things about Jesus that's true, that the Bible tells us is true, but is very, very hard to get our human minds around the truth of it. He is fully God and fully man without being less of either. I think we could grasp easily if he was some kind of a hybrid, that he was part God and part man, like somebody from Greek mythology or something like that. But that's not true to who he is. The Bible presents God as the Son of God. He is fully God, and he is fully man, all at the same time without becoming less of either. He says this, and it's a, it's a strange statement. It's a statement that needs some explanation. He says, truly, truly, whenever Jesus says in the Bible, truly, truly, he is saying, sit up, pay attention. What I'm about to you, tell you is not only is it true, but it's importantly so. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. The meaning of the statement is that heaven is now opened for continuous communication with people. The representative of whom is Christ himself under the title the Son of Man. In in the Bible, especially in the Old Testament, we, we have various offices. This gets a little technical here for a second, but bear with me. For example, in Old Testament, Israel, you had the priest. And what was the priest's job? Well, the priest's job was to represent the people to God. They would go into the Holy of Holies. They would make sacrifices on behalf of the people. Sometimes the king would come to the priest and ask him to inquire of the Lord using the Urim and Thurim. We studied that during our study of David, the life of David. That was their job to represent the people to God. But you also had these figures that were the prophets, kind of this wild group of people, gadflies. They would go out and they would make proclamations against the people. And what, what were they doing? Well, they were representing God to the people. They were God's mouthpiece. It was going in the opposite direction. And of course, you also had the king who presided over the governance of the people, And what we see is that in the New Testament, all three of these offices are perfectly and permanently forever embodied in the person of Jesus. Jesus, because he's fully God and fully man, is both prophet and priest in one. And Nathanael is right when he says, you're the king. You're son of man, you're son of God, you're the king, you're the total package forever and always. We now no longer need a priest. We no longer need a man to mediate between us and God because Jesus is that. And we no longer need a prophet because Jesus is that for us. He is the Son of Man, and he's our king. And so when it says here that we see angels ascending and descending on the Son of Man, we see that God, Jesus, who is God, is the conduit through which we have continuous, generous access to God in heaven. God is now communicating to us through the Holy Spirit by way of Jesus and what he did for us. We are now able to have an open line to God the Father through Jesus. Jesus is like this ladder going up to heaven. This is a beautiful, poetic statement about the church about the, what we're living in, but Nathanael had not yet seen. You see, the thing that Jesus said, the beautiful thing that's coming, is greater than what you just experienced. We're living in the midst of it. Jesus implied that he himself would be the medium of this revelation, and his order of the angels going up and down implies that they rose from the earth with their needs, their inquiries, and then returned to the earth with answers and supply. Jesus' mission is to answer human need and make sure that the answers are proclaimed. And this morning, I want to close with this. Remember way back at the beginning when Jesus turned and noticed that John and Andrew were following him. Do you remember the very first question he asked them? (laughs) He said, "What are you seeking? What what are you looking for?" And of course, he knew. He knows what's in a man. He's none of that was hidden to him. It was a question to probe their motives. It was a question for their benefit, as Jesus very often does in Scripture. And I want to put that question to you this morning. Whether you're gathered here in the sanctuary with us or you're at home watching online, what are you seeking? What do you want? Are you seeking Jesus? Have you heard his voice? I'm confident that if he's calling you, I don't need to shout or make arguments. Have you come to this service today to check out Jesus for yourself? The place we come to in order to see and understand Jesus is the Bible. If you want to come and see Jesus, he is encountered in the pages of our Bibles. And of course, I or just about any Christian that I know would love to help answer the questions of anybody who has them about Jesus and the Bible. But if you're Nathaniel, you just have got to kick the tires for yourself. You don't want to talk to Philip anymore. I would encourage you, you can come and see. You see, it's not that Christians are unopposed to answering your questions at all, but if that's not who you are, I would just invite you to come and look to God in the Bible. Come and kick the tires. Come and see. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Try that rhubarb. You won't be disappointed. But I just want to close. Maybe you're, maybe you're out there. Maybe you've been tuning into State Roads online worship services, and you just, again, are not super clear on what exactly is the good news of Christianity. What is it? Well, the first is this. First, before you can get to the good news, you have to talk about the bad news. And the bad news is we're all sinners. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We're all sinners. And that means that the wages of sin is death. That's the next verse I would share with you. Romans 6.23, because we have sinned against a righteous God, there is a penalty. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Another verse. But God shows his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You see, Christianity is not about being good people. It's about following a perfectly good Jesus. Our salvation does not rest on our goodness on our ability to obey God. We haven't earned anything from God. He's given us salvation as a gift, a free gift. It says the wages of sin is death. A wage is something you earn. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. A gift is given because of the goodness of the giver, not because of the merit of the one who receives it. And it says, but God shows his own love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You weren't good, so God said, okay, you can come in. It's because when we were yet sinners, hostile in mind, separated, far off, he did what he did. In Romans ten nine and 13 says this, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You will be saved. In verse 13, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. If you call on Jesus believing and trusting in who he is, you'll be saved. You'll know salvation. That's a promise. And Romans 5.1 talks about the, what comes out of that. It says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Peace with God. Notice very carefully, it doesn't say that you are justified by your goodness. You're justified, it says, by faith. Faith in what? Faith in the perfect righteousness of Christ and in his sacrifice for you. That when Jesus went to the cross and died, he took the penalty for your sins there. But there was a great transaction where you were also given by faith his reward. And Romans 8:1 says, "There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus." It's a done deal. And then lastly, I would share Romans 8:38 through39. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. You see, you weren't saved because of anything you did. And you also can't maintain your place in God's favor by being great. (laughs) It's all about God and about his mercy and about a free gift. In every believer, there does grow through the Holy Spirit a love for righteousness. Sin is serious business, and I don't mean to dismiss the serious of sin by talking about it in that way. But I do think that it's important to understand what the whole thing of the gospel is. And that is, it's all about Jesus and what he's done for you. John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And that's the gospel. That when we put our trust in Jesus for salvation, when we put our trust in his death on the cross, where he died in the place of our sins, he takes away our sins. And we can now be left justified with God and there being no condemnation, at peace with God the Father. So, I found it. I found him. I found the Messiah. I found the one of whom Moses and the law and the prophets wrote. I have found the promised one, the way, the truth, and the life. And I would love, if that's not you this morning, if you have not yet found him, to come and see. Check it out. I am absolutely convinced. And if you have heard the voice of God this morning calling you, if Jesus is calling to you and you find yourself believing, just right now, in the privacy of your heart, I would invite you to bow your head with me and pray this prayer. There's really nothing magical in these words. God knows your heart. Just as surely as he saw Nathaniel under the fig tree. Uh, But just in these words, this might help you in a way to respond to what God has birthed in your heart. The faith that you find there. So if you want to put your trust in Jesus for salvation, you can just make this prayer. I'm about to pray your prayer. Let's pray. God, I know that I have sinned against you. And I am deserving of punishment. But Father, I believe, as it says in your word, that Jesus took the punishment that I deserved so that through faith in him I could be forgiven. With your help, Lord, by the Holy Spirit, I place my trust in you for salvation. Thank you for your wonderful grace and forgiveness, the gift of eternal life. Amen. Uh, If you are at home on the internet or even here in the building and you just prayed that prayer, you are a new creation. And you might be wondering, well, what's next? I'd encourage you to attach yourself to a church family and tell somebody, tell a fellow Christian about the decision you've made to put your faith in Jesus. I would certainly love to talk with you about that. Uh, That's it. Let me pray again and then we will dismiss. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this time. I thank you for my friends, my brothers and sisters here at State Road. And Father, I just pray, Lord, that you would bless us as we find a way forward together as a church family uh, through this pan, through the remainder of this pandemic and coming out the other side. Father, help us to be a blessing and a help to your community and to this community here in Aristic County and to represent you well in the midst of these days. We love you, we trust you, and are so grateful for your calling on our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.